And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Well, hello there, listeners. This is your old buddy, Jimmy Sweets. If my voice seems a little solitary, that's because the great Uncle Frank has gone missing. Well, not really missing. He's in Atlanta, and he's happy to report it's hot as hell. But fret not, we will be hearing some updates from time to time from the big lug himself. But for now, we have a very good show for you. What do you have, Jimmy Sweets? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've got a Kurt Vonnegut story about a man who has multiple personalities, or maybe just the acting bug. You've got a tale of Camelot, a tale of suspense, read by Vincent Price and an old Scottish yarn, bits of which you might recognize. Some songs, and much, much more. Let's get to it. The naughty lady of Shady Lane Has hit the town like a bomb The back fence gossip ain't been this good since Mabel ran off with Tom Our town was peaceful and quiet Before she came on the scene The lady has started a riot Disturbing the suburban routine The naughty lady of Shady Lane Has the town in a world The naughty lady of Shady Lane Oh my, oh what a girl You should see how she carries on With her admirers galore She must be giving them quite a thrill The way they flock to her door She throws those come-hither glances At every Tom, Dick and Joe when offered some liquid refreshment The lady never, never says no The naughty lady of Shady Lane Has the town in a world The naughty lady of Shady Lane Be oh my oh what a girl The things they're trying 
need someone to change her And she'll be nice as can be If you're in the neighborhood, stranger You're welcome to drop in and see The naughty lady of Shady Lane So delightful to hold The naughty lady of Shady Lane So delectable, quite respectable She's only nine days old. This is Who Am I This Time by Kurt Vonnegut from Welcome to the Monkey House, originally published in 1961, read by Archibald Hetherington. The North Crawford Mask and Wig Club an amateur theatrical society I belong to, voted to do Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire for the spring play. Doris Sawyer, who always directs, said she couldn't direct this time because her mother was so sick. And she said the club ought to develop some other directors anyway, because she couldn't live forever, even though she'd made it safely to 74. So I got stuck with the directing job, even though the only thing I'd ever directed before was the installation of combination aluminum store windows and screens I'd sold. That's what I am, a salesman of storm windows and doors, and here and there a bathtub enclosure. As far as acting goes, the highest rank I ever held on stage was either butler or policeman, whichever's higher. I made a lot of conditions before I took the directing job, and the biggest one was that Harry Nash... The only real actor the club has had to take the Marlon Brando part in the play. To give you an idea of how versatile Harry is, inside of one year he was Captain Quig in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, then Abe Lincoln in Abe Lincoln in Illinois, and then the young architect in The Moon is Blue. The year after that, Harry Nash was Henry VIII in Anne of a Thousand Days and Doc in Come Back, Little Sheba. And I was after him for Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire. Harry wasn't at the meetings to say whether he'd take the part or not. He never came to meetings. He was too shy. He didn't stay away from meetings because he had something else to do. He wasn't married, didn't go out with women, didn't have any close men friends either. He stayed away from all kinds of gatherings because he never could think of anything to say or do without a script. So I had to go down to Miller's hardware store, where Harry was a clerk, the next day and ask him if he'd take the part. I stopped off at the telephone company to complain about a bill I'd gotten for a call to Honolulu. I'd never called Honolulu in my life. And there was this beautiful girl I'd never seen before behind the counter at the phone company. And she explained that the company had put in an automatic billing machine and that the machine didn't have all the bugs out of it yet. It made mistakes. Not only did I not call Honolulu, I told her, I don't think anybody in North Crawford ever has or will. So she took charge of the bill, and I asked her if she was from around North Crawford. She said no. She said she just came with the new billing machine to teach the local girls how to take care of it. After that, she said, she would go with some other machine to someplace else. Well, I said, as long as people have to come along with the machines, I guess we're all right. What? She said... When machines start delivering themselves, I said, I guess that's when the people better really start worrying. Oh, she said. She didn't seem very interested in that subject, 
and I wondered if she was interested in anything. She seemed kind of numb, almost a machine herself, an automatic phone company politeness machine. How long will you be in town here, I asked her. I stay in each town eight weeks, sir, she said. She had pretty blue eyes, but there wasn't much hope or curiosity in them. She told me she had been going from town to town like that for two years, always a stranger. And I got it in my head that she might make a good Stella for the play. Stella was the wife of the Marlon Brando character, the wife of the character I wanted Harry Nash to play. So I told her where and when we were going to hold tryouts, and said the club would be very happy if she'd come. She looked surprised, and she warmed up a little. You know, she said, that's the first time anybody ever asked me to participate in any community thing. Well, I said, there isn't any other way to get to know a lot of nice people faster than to be in a play with them. She said her name was Helene Shaw. She said she might just surprise me and herself. She said she just might come. You would think that North Crawford would be fed up with Harry Nash in plays after all the plays he'd been in, but the fact was that North Crawford probably could have gone on enjoying Harry forever, because he was never Harry on stage. When the maroon curtain went up on the stage in the gymnasium of the Consolidated Junior Senior High School, Harry, body and soul, was exactly what the script and the director told him to be. Somebody said one time that Harry ought to go to a psychiatrist so he could be somebody important and colorful in real life, too, so he could get married anyway, and maybe get a better job than just clerking in Miller's hardware store for $50 a week. But I don't know what a psychiatrist could have turned up about him that the town didn't already know. The trouble with Harry was he'd been left on the doorstep of the Unitarian Church when he was a baby, and he never did find out who his parents were. So I held tryouts where they're always held in the meeting room on the second floor of the North Crawford Public Library. Doris Sawyer, the woman who usually directs, came to give me the benefit of all her experience. The two of us sat in state upstairs, while the people who wanted parts waited below. We called them upstairs one by one. Harry Nash came to the tryouts, even though it was a waste of time. I guess he wanted to get that little bit more acting in. For Harry's pleasure and our pleasure, too, we had him read from the scene where he beats up his wife. It was a play in itself, the way Harry did it, and Tennessee Williams hadn't written it all, either. Tennessee Williams didn't write the part, for instance, where Harry, who weighs about 145, who's about 5 feet 8 inches tall, added 50 pounds to his weight and 4 inches to his height by just picking up a playbook. He had a short little double-breasted bellows-back grade-school graduation suit coat and a dinky little red tie with a horse head on it. He took off the coat and tie, opened his collar, then turned his back to Doris and me, getting up steam for the part. There was a great big rip in the back of his shirt, and it looked like a fairly new shirt, too. He'd ripped it on purpose, so he could be that much more like Marlon Brando, right from the first... When he faced us again, he was huge and handsome, conceited and cruel. Doris read the part of Stella, the wife, and Harry bullied that old, old lady into believing that she was a sweet pregnant girl married to a sexy gorilla who was going to beat her brains out. She had me believing it, too. And I read the lines of Blanche, her sister in the play, 
and darned if Harry didn't scare me into feeling like a drunken, fated southern belle. And then, while Doris and I were getting over our emotional experiences, like people coming out from under ether, Harry put down the playbook, put on his coat and tie, and turned into the pale hardware store clerk again. Was, was that all right, he said, and he seemed pretty sure he wouldn't get the part. Well, I said, for a first reading, that wasn't too bad. Is there a chance I'll get the part, he said. I don't know why he always had to pretend that there was some doubt about his getting his part, but he did. I think we can safely say we're leaning powerfully in your direction, I told him. He was very pleased. Thanks, thanks a lot, he said, and shook my hand. Is there a pretty new girl downstairs, I said, meaning Helene Shaw. I didn't notice, said Harry. It turned out that Helene Shaw had come for the tryouts, and Doris and I had our hearts broken. We thought the North Crawford Mask and Wig Club was finally going to put a really good-looking, really young girl on stage, instead of one of the beat-up 45-year-old women who we generally had to palm off as girls. But Helene Shaw couldn't act for sour apples. No matter what we gave her to read, she was the same girl with the same smile for anybody who had a complaint about his phone bill. Doris tried to coach her some, to make her understand that Stella in the play was a very passionate girl who loved a gorilla because she needed a gorilla. But Helene just read the lines the same way again. I don't think a volcano could have stirred her up enough to say, Ooh. Dear, said Doris, I'm going to ask you a personal question. All right, said Helene. Have you ever been in love, said Doris. The reason I ask, she said, remembering some old love might help you put more warmth in your acting. Helene frowned and thought hard. Well, she said, I travel a lot, you know, and practically all the men in the different companies I visit are married, and I never stay any place long enough to know many people who aren't. What about school, said Doris. What about puppy love and all the other kinds of love in school? So Helene thought hard about that. And then she said, Even in school I was always moving around a lot. My father was a construction worker, following jobs around, so I was always saying hello or goodbye to some place without anything in between. Um, said Doris. Would movie stars count? said Helene. I don't mean in real life. I never knew any. I just mean up on the screen. Doris looked at me and rolled her eyes. I guess that's love of a kind, she said. And then Helene got a little enthusiastic. I used to sit through movies over and over again, she said, and pretend I was married to whoever the man movie star was. They were the only people who came with us. No matter where we moved, movie stars were there. Uh-huh, said Doris. Well, thank you, Miss Shaw, I said. You go downstairs and wait with the rest. We'll let you know. So we tried to find another Stella, and there just wasn't one. Not one woman in the club with the dew still on her. All we've got are Blanches, I said, meaning all we had were faded women who could play the part of Blanche, Stella's faded sister. That's life, I guess. Twenty Blanches to one Stella. And when you find a Stella, said Doris, it turns out she doesn't know what love is. 
Doris and I decided that there was one last thing we could try. We could get Harry Nash to play a scene along with Helene. He just might make her bubble the least bit, I said. That girl hasn't got a bubble in her, said Doris. So we called down the stairs for Helene to come back on up. And we told somebody to go find Harry. Harry never sat with the rest of the people at tryouts, or at rehearsals either. The minute he didn't have a part to play, he'd disappear into some hiding place where he could hear people call him, but where he couldn't be seen. At tryouts in the library, he generally hid in the reference room, passing the time looking at flags of different countries in the front of the dictionary. Helene came back upstairs, and we were very sorry and surprised to see that she had been crying. Oh, dear, said Doris. Oh, my, now what on earth's the trouble, dear? I was terrible, wasn't I, said Helene, hanging her head. Doris said the only thing anybody can say in an amateur theatrical society when somebody cries. She said, Why, no, dear, you were marvelous. No, I wasn't, said Helene. I'm a walking icebox, and I know it. Nobody could look at you and say that, said Doris. When they get to know me, they can say it, said Helene. When people get to know me, that's what they do say. Her tears got worse. I don't want to be the way I am, she said. I just can't help it, living the way I've lived all my life. The only experiences I've ever had have been in crazy dreams of movie stars. When I meet somebody nice in real life, I feel as though I were in some kind of big bottle, as though I couldn't touch that person no matter how hard I tried. And Helene pushed on air as though it were a big bottle all around her. You ask me if I've ever been in love, she said to Doris. No, but I want to be. I know what this play's about. I know what Stella's supposed to feel and why she feels it. I, 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 she said, and her tears wouldn't let her go on. You what, dear, said Doris gently. I, said Helene, and she pushed on the imaginary bottle again. I just don't know how to begin, she said. There was heavy clumping on the library stairs. It sounded like a deep-sea diver coming upstairs in his lead shoes. It was Harry Nash, turning himself into Marlon Brando. In he came, practically dragging his knuckles on the floor, and he was so much in character that the sight of a weeping woman made him sneer. Harry, I said, I'd like you to meet Helene Shaw. Helene, this is Harry Nash. If you get the part of Stella... He'll be your husband in the play. Harry didn't offer to shake hands. He put his hands in his pockets, and he hunched over, and he looked her up and down, gave her the looks that left her naked. Her tears stopped right then and there. I wondered if you two would play the fight scene, I said, and then the reunion scene right after it. Sure, said Harry, his eyes still on her. Those eyes burned up close faster than she could put them on. Sure. If Stell's game. What? said Helene. She turned the color of cranberry juice. Stell. Stella, said Harry. That's you. Stell's my wife. I handed the two of them playbooks. Harry snatched his from me without a word of thanks. Helene's hands weren't working very well, and I had to kind of mold them around the book. I want something I can throw, said Harry. What? I said. There's one place where I throw a radio out the window, said Harry. What can I throw? So I said an iron paperweight was the radio, and I opened the window wide. 
Helene Shaw looked scared to death. Where do you want us to start? said Harry, and he rolled his shoulders like a prize fighter warming up. Start a few lines back from where you throw the radio out the window, I said. Okay, okay, said Harry, warming up, warming up. He scanned the stage directions. Let's see, he said. After I throw the radio, she runs off stage and I chase her, and I soccer one. Right, I said. Okay, baby, Harry said to Helene, her eyelids drooping. What was about to happen was wilder than a chariot race in Ben-Hur. On your mark, said Harry. Get ready, baby. Go! When the scene was over, Helene Shaw was as hot as a hard carrier, as limp as an eel. She sat down with her mouth open and her head hanging to one side. She wasn't in any bottle any more. There wasn't any bottle to hold her up and keep her safe and clean. The bottle was gone. Do I get the part or don't I? Harry snarled at me. You'll do, I said. You said a mouthful, he said. I'll be going now. See you around, Stella. He said Helene and left. He slammed the door behind him. Helene, I said. Miss Shaw? Mm, she said. The part of Stella is yours, I said. You were great. I was, she said. I had no idea you had that much fire in you, dear, Doris said to her. Fire? said Helene. She didn't know if she was afoot or on horseback. Sky rockets, pinwheels, Roman candles, said Doris. Meh, said Helene, and that was all she said. She looked as though she were going to sit in the chair with her mouth open forever. Stella, I said. Huh? she said. You have my permission to go. So we started having rehearsals four nights a week on the stage of the Consolidated School, and Harry and Helene set such a pace that everybody in the production was half crazy with excitement and exhaustion before we'd rehearsed four times. Usually a director has to beg people to learn their lines, but I had no such trouble. Harry and Helene were working so well together that everybody else in the cast regarded it as a duty and an honor and a pleasure to support them. I was certainly lucky, or thought I was. Things were going so well, so hot and heavy, so early in the game that I had to say to Harry and Helene after one love scene, hold a little something back for the actual performance, would you please? You'll burn yourselves out. I said that at the fourth or fifth rehearsal, and Lydia Miller, who was playing Blanche, the faded sister, was sitting next to me in the audience. In real life, she's the wife of Vern Miller. Vern owns Miller's hardware store. Vern was Harry's boss. Lydia, I said to her, have we got a play or have we got a play? Yes, she said. You've got a play, all right. She made it sound as though I'd committed some kind of crime, done something just terrible. You should be very proud of yourself. What do you mean by that, I said. Before Lydia could answer, Harry yelled at me from the stage, asked if I was through with him, asked if he could go home. I told him he could, and still Marlon Brando, he left, kicking furniture out of his way and slamming doors. Helene was left all alone on the stage, sitting on a couch with the same gaga look she'd had after tryouts. That girl was drained. I turned to Lydia and I said, Well, until now, I thought I had every reason to be happy and proud. Is there something going on that I don't know about? 
Did you know that girl's in love with Harry? said Lydia. In the play, I said. What play? said Lydia. There isn't any play going on now. And look at her up there. She gave a sad cackle. <laughs> you aren't directing this play. Who is? I said. Mother Nature at her worst, said Lydia. And think what it's really going to do to that girl when she discovers what Harry is, she corrected herself. What Harry isn't, she said. I didn't do anything about it because I didn't figure it was any of my business. I heard Lydia try to do something about it, but she didn't get very far. You know, Lydia said to Helene one night, I once played Anne Rutledge, and Harry was Abraham Lincoln. Helene clapped her hands. That must have been heaven, she said. It was, in a way, said Lydia. Sometimes I'd get so worked up I'd love Harry the way I'd love Abraham Lincoln. I'd have to come back to earth and remind myself that he wasn't ever going to free the slaves, that he was just a clerk in my husband's hardware store. He's the most marvelous man I ever met, said Helene. Of course, one thing you have to get set for when you're in a play with Harry, said Lydia, is what happens after the last performance. What are you talking about, said Helene. Once the show's over, said Lydia, whatever you thought Harry was just evaporates into thin air. I don't believe it, said Helene. I admit it's hard to believe, said Lydia. Then Helene got a little sore. Anyway, why tell me about it, she said. Even if it is true, what do I care? I, I, I don't know, said Lydia, backing away. I, I just thought you might find it interesting. Well, I don't, said Helene. And Lydia slunk away, feeling about as frowsy and unloved as she was supposed to feel in the play. After that, nobody said anything more to Helene to warn her about Harry. Not even when word got around that she'd told the telephone company that she didn't want to be moved around anymore, that she wanted to stay in North Crawford. So the time finally came to put on the play. We ran it for three nights, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we murdered those audiences. They believed every word that was said on stage, and when the maroon curtain came down, they were ready to go to the nuthouse along with Blanche, the fated sister. On Thursday night, the other girls at the telephone company sent Helene a dozen red roses. When Helene and Harry were taking a curtain call together, I passed the roses over the footlights to her. She came forward for them, took one rose from the bouquet to give to Harry. But when she turned to give Harry the rose in front of everybody, Harry was gone. The curtain came down on that extra little scene, that girl offering a rose to nobody and nothing. I went backstage, and I found her still holding that one rose. She'd put the rest of the bouquet aside. There were tears in her eyes. What did I do wrong? she said to me. Did I insult him in some way? No, I said. He always does that after a performance. The minute it's over, he clears out as fast as he can. And tomorrow he'll disappear again, without even taking off his makeup. And Saturday, she said, he'll stay for the cast party on Saturday, won't he? Harry never goes to parties, I said. When the curtain comes down on Saturday, that's the last anybody will see of him until he goes to work on Monday. How sad, she said. Helene's performance on Friday night wasn't nearly so good as Thursday's. She seemed to be thinking about other things. 
She watched Harry take off after curtain call. She didn't say a word. On Saturday, she put on the best performance yet. Ordinarily, it was Harry who set the pace, but on Saturday, Harry had to work to keep up with Helene. When the curtain came down on the final curtain call, Harry wanted to get away, but he couldn't. Helene wouldn't let go his hand. The rest of the cast and the stage crew and a lot of well-wishers from the audience were all standing around Harry and Helene, and Harry was trying to get his hand back. Well, he said, I've got to go. Where? she said. Oh, he said, home. Won't you please take me to the cast party, she said. He got very red. I'm afraid I'm not much on parties, he said. All the Marlon Brando in him was gone. He was tongue-tied. He was scared. He was shy. He was everything Harry was famous for being between plays. All right, she said. I'll let you go if you promise me one thing. What's that, he said, and I thought he would jump out a window if she'd let go of him then. I want you to promise to stay here until I get your present, she said. Present, he said, getting even more panicky. Promise, she said. He promised. It was the only way he could get his hand back. And he stood there miserably while Helene went down to the ladies' dressing room for the present. While he waited, a lot of people congratulated him on being such a fine actor. But congratulations never made him happy. He just wanted to get away. Helene came back with the present. It turned out to be a little blue book with a big red ribbon for a place marker. It was a copy of Romeo and Juliet. Harry was very embarrassed. It was all he could do to say, Thank you. The marker marks my favorite scene, said Helene. Um, said Harry. Don't you want to see what my favorite scene is, she said. So Harry had to open the book to the red ribbon. Helene got close to him and read a line of Juliet's. How camest thou hither, and tell me, and wherefore, she read. The orchard walls are high and hard to climb, and the place death, considering who thou art. If any of my kinsmen find thee here, she pointed to the next line. Read what Romeo says, said Helene. Harry cleared his throat. He didn't want to read the line, but he had to. With love's light wings did I o'er perch these walls, he read out loud in his everyday voice. But then a change came over him. For stony limits cannot hold love out, he read, and he straightened up, and eight years dropped away from him, and he was brave and gay. And what love can do that dares love attempt, he read, therefore thy kinsmen are no let to me. If they do see thee, they will murder thee, said Helene, and she started him walking towards the wings. Alack, said Harry, there lies more peril in thine eyes than twenty of their swords. Helene led him towards the backstage exit. Look thou but sweet, said Harry, and I am proof against their enmity. I would not for the world they saw thee here, said Helene, and that was the last we heard. The two of them were out the door and gone. They never did show up at the cast party. One week later, they were married. They seem very happy, although they're kind of strange from time to time, depending on what play they're reading to each other at the time. I dropped into the phone company office the other day, on account of the billing machine, was making dumb mistakes again. I asked her what plays she and Harry had been reading lately. In the past week, she said, I've been married to Othello, been loved by Faust, 
and been kidnapped by Paris. Wouldn't you say I was the luckiest girl in town? I said I thought so, and I told her most of the women in town thought so too. They had their chance, she said. Most of them couldn't stand the excitement, I said, and I told her I'd been asked to direct another play. I asked if she and Harry would be available for the cast. She gave me a big smile and said, Who are we this time? There was an old woman and she baked five pies. And she says to her daughter, she says, Go and put them pies in the larder and don't you touch them or she give you what for. Well, do you know what this girl went and done? She set to work and gobbled them up, the whole lot. She did. Well, come supper time, her mother says, Go and get me one of them pies. I just fancies one of them. So the girl says, How can I when they've gone? Gone, says her mother. How could they be gone? Because I've had them, says the daughter, all of them. Well, the mother was that wild, she went and sat outside on the front doorstep to cool herself off. And as she sat there, she started singing. My daughter's gobbled up five pies today. My daughter's gobbled up five pies today. Now, the king was a-coming down the road, and he heard her a-singing, but what she was a-singing of, he couldn't rightly hear, you see. So he stopped. He says, what's that you was a-singing, my good woman? Now she was ashamed for the king to hear what her daughter had really done, so instead of singing about the pies, she sang, My daughter's knitted five pair of socks today. My daughter's knitted five pair of socks today. Look, some mercy, says the king. I never heard tell of anybody as could do that. And then he says, Look here, woman. He says, I'm wanting a wife and I likes hand-knitted socks. I'll marry your daughter. And 11 months of the year, she shall have all she likes to eat and all the pretty frocks she likes to wear and all the company she likes to keep but the last month of the year she'll have to knit me five pair of socks every day and if she don't awful go her head right right says the mother for she thought how wonderful for her daughter to be wedded to a king so they was married and for 11 months this girl had all she liked to eat and all the pretty frocks she liked to wear and all the company she liked to keep and never a word did her husband mention about these here socks she'd got to knit so of course she thought he'd forgotten all about them However, on the last day of the eleventh month, he takes her up to a room she'd never set eyes on before. And he says, Now, my dear, you'll be locked in here tomorrow with something to eat and drink and a pair of knitting needles and a nice lot of wool. And if you haven't knitted five pair of socks by the night time, your head'll go off. And away he went about his business. Wow, she was that frightened. She'd been so lazy all her life, you see. She didn't so much as know how to knit. And what was she to do tomorrow with nobody to help her? Oh, she sat down by the fireplace and looks how she did cry. Well, all of a sudden she heard a little knocking noise low down on the window. So she upped and opened it. And what should she see there but a little black thing with a long tail? And that looked up at her right curious. And that says, what are you a crying for, my dear? What's that to you, she says. Never you mind, that says. You tell me what you're a-crying for. And that twirled that's tail round. Well, in the end, she upped and told it all about the pies and the socks and everything. Now, this is what I'll do, says this little black thing. I'll come to the window every morning and I'll take away the wool and I'll bring the socks back at night already knitted. Now, how's that? What's your pay, she says. Well, that looked out of the corner of that size, right curious, and that says, 
I'll give you three guesses every night to guess my name. And if you haven't guessed it before the month's up, you'll be mine. Well, she thought she'd be sure to guess that's name before the month was up, so she says, All right then, I agree. Well, next morning, her husband took her up into the room and he says, Now then, my dear, there's your wool and there's your knitting needles, and if you haven't knitted five pair of socks by tonight, awful go your head. And then he went out and he locked the door. Well, he'd hardly gone out of the room when there come a knocking again the window, and she upped and opened it, and there, sure enough, was this little black thing a-sitting on the ledge. Where's the wool? That says. Here it be, she says. And the needles. I got me own needles, that said. And away that flew. Well, in the evening, back it come with five pairs of socks over its arm, all knitted up beautiful, real, oh, real beautiful they was. Here they be, that says, as it give em to her. Now then, what's my name? Is it Bill, she says. No, no, it ain't Bill, that says. Is it Ned, she says. No, no, it ain't Ned, that says, and that twirled that's tail round. Well, is it Mark, she says. No, it ain't Mark, that says, and that twirled that's tail harder and harder, and away that flew. Well, every day the pile of wool was there waiting for her, and every day that little black thing used to come mornings and evenings, and all day long she sat there trying to think of names to say to it, but she could never hit on the right one. And at last it come to the last day but one, and when this little black thing come at night with a five pair of socks that says, Have you got my name yet, my dear? Is it Nicodemus, she says. No, it ain't Nicodemus, that says. Is it Samuel, she says. No, it ain't Samuel, that says. Well, is it Methuselah, she says. No, it ain't Methuselah, that says. And that twirl that's tail round. And then that says, Woman, there's only tomorrow night, and then you'll be mine. And away that flew. Well, she felt horrid, she really did. However, she heard the king a-coming along the passage, and he unlocked the door, and in he come. And when he seed these five pair of socks, he says, Oh, he says, it looks as if I shan't have to have your head off after all, my dear. I'll have my supper in here tonight, along of you. And so down the two of them sat, you see. Well, he'd hardly had a mouthful when he suddenly starts a-laughing. What are you a-laughing at, she says. Oh, why, he says, I was out a-riding today and I come to a place in the woods I'd never seen before where there's an old chalk pit. And suddenly I heard a sort of a clicking noise. So I gets off my horse and I tiptoes up to the pit and I looks down over the edge. And what do you think I seed? The funniest little black thing you ever set your eyes on. And that had a little pair of knitting needles and a great big pile of wool. And that was a knitting away wonderful fast. And that was a twirling that's tail round. <laughs> and do you know what that was a singing of? What, she says. That was a singing, Nimmy, Nimmy, not. My name's Tom Tit-Tot. I thought I should have died a-laughing. I really did. Well, when she heard that, she was so excited, she could have jumped out of her skin. Anyway, next day, when this little black thing come for the wool, that looked at her proper nasty. And when the night come, that stepped right in on the window ledge, and that was a grinning from ear to ear. And, ooh, oh, that's tail was a-twirling round. Have you got my name yet? That says. Is it Solomon, she says, pretending to be afeard. No, it ain't Solomon, that says, and that come right into the room, and that's eyes was a-burning like coals afire. Well, is it Zebedee, she says. No, it ain't Zebedee, that says, and that twirled that's tail in so fast you could hardly see it. And then that stretched out that little black hands as if to take hold of her. 
Now take your time, woman, that says. If you don't get it right next time, you'll be mine. Well, she backed away a step or two and she took a deep breath and she pointed her finger right in its face and she says, Nimmy Nimmy Not, your name's Tom Tit Tot. And she laughed till I thought she was going to split her sides. Well, when that heard her, that gave the most awful shriek you ever heard in your life. And that's tail suddenly stopped a twirling and that hopped up onto the windowsill and that flew out of the window into the night and she never saw it no more. And a good job too. I hope you like this side too. <laughs> ho ho! On the sloping lawn of a children's playground in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, stand strange reminders of an earlier day. One of these is an octagonal spring house where, more than a hundred years ago, aristocratic southern gentlemen and ladies gathered to take the waters, which were guaranteed to be beneficial to the general health. The other, only a few yards away, is a grave now surrounded by a white picket fence. A white marker beside it reads, Unknown, 
Hallowed and hushed be the place of the dead. Step softly, bow head. When the body of the beautiful girl who lies here was lowered into the ground, the impressive funeral ceremonies took place against the background of an entrance to an enormous inn. Eight white pillars rose from the floor of its veranda to carved capitals beneath its roof. This was Harrodsburg Springs Hotel in the Saratoga of the South, gayest of all Kentucky resorts. To it came the proudest and richest of southern families, the Breckenridges, the Morgans, the Rowans, the Poignards, the Buchanans. The great Senator Henry Clay was an occasional visitor, and once the hearts of southern belles and their mamas beat faster for the presence of the charming and eligible young Englishman, Frederick Peel, son of the renowned Sir Robert. There is no hotel on the grounds now, the famous dances held in the great ballroom to the music of a three-piece slave orchestra are remembered only in the diaries of patrons long dead. There is not even much comment in Harrodsburg about the lone grave beside the spring house. She was the girl who danced herself to death, is the usual answer to the inquiring tourist who happens upon the little park. There are many versions of the story of this girl and at least one narrative of a strange modern aftermath. Some say she came by Kentucky River Packet and was driven from the Harrodsburg Landing through the impressive lion gate of the grounds in the hotel carryall. Others tell that she came in her own carriage driven by a slave who immediately turned his team about and was not seen again. There are no disagreements, however, as to the impression she made in the ballroom that night. Among all the beauties attending, there was no girl so distinctive, so perfect a dancer, so fascinating in manner. Though it was obvious that she was pleased with the attentions of the many gentlemen, though she smiled vivaciously and talked animatedly, there was a pathos in her eyes that enhanced her loveliness. During an intermission between the dances, she strolled on the spacious lawn in the starlight, surrounded by a half-dozen of her most ardent admirers. She stopped beneath the foliage of a widespread locust tree and suddenly became sad and pensive. I've been happy here, she said. If I were to die, I could wish for nothing better than to be buried at this spot. When she and her companions returned to the ballroom, the music of the slave orchestra was gayer and quicker than ever. Dance followed dance, and the girl seemed never to miss a step. Her curls bobbed about her oval face, and her little feet were swift on the shining floor. Suddenly, when the ball was at its merriest, there was a cry. The girl had sunk to the floor. Her features had become still. Her eyes were closed. She's fainted, said someone. But the noted doctor who knelt at her side looked dazed with surprise, then shook his head sorrowfully. She is dead, he said. After the guests had returned to their rooms, Dr. Graham, who owned the hotel, and his staff, sought to discover who the girl was and whence she came. 
To their consternation, they found that although she had stopped at the desk ostensibly to sign the register, she had written no name or address therein. Frantically, they questioned the gentleman who had danced with her and the guests who had conversed with her. All agreed that she had been evasive in answering queries about her name and her home. One gentleman said that he understood that she came from Tennessee. Another said that she had spoken of life in New Orleans. Faced with the realization that they could find out nothing about the dead girl, they arranged a funeral service. The gentleman who had walked with her beneath the stars remembered the wish that she had spoken under the locust tree. There her grave was dug by the black musicians who had played for her dancing. All the fashionable guests of the big hotel gathered about it as the nameless corpse was laid to rest. A distinguished prelate said a few solemn words and then all moved away believing that the story of the lone grave was completed. So romantic and sad a tale, however, is not likely to come to a decisive end. Years have gone by, and sometimes in their passage strange narratives have plagued the minds of those who have interested themselves in the story of the girl who danced herself to death. Once a late homecomer, taking the shortest way to his front door, followed a path through the park that led him between the spring house and the grave. Near the entrance to the spring house, he thought he saw a beautiful girl in a white ball gown, standing as if waiting for her escort. As he approached, she saw him and advanced toward him, her left hand held out in an appealing gesture. Her lips moved rapidly, and he realized that she was speaking to him earnestly, though he could hear no sound. A memory of the dead girl's story came into his mind, and terror-stricken he raced from the park. Other passers-by have told similar stories, which vary little in their major element. The girl was dressed in white, she was apparently in distress, and she was speaking earnestly. I suppose I would not have come upon this story at all had it not been for the fact that an old friend of mine, now living in retirement in New Orleans, was once an antique dealer and had combed the district around Harrodsburg in the effort to purchase valuable old Kentucky furniture. A few years ago, he came into possession of a handsome mahogany and curly maple secretary which contained piles of old papers considered worthless by a previous owner. He asked me to go over them in the hopes of finding material of historic interest, but I found only one page I treasured, and this was more of psychic than historical value. It read as follows. I write this down for what it is worth, and even at best this is nothing. I am an old lady and almost stone deaf, but my eyes are better than those of most people of my age. Because of my infirmity, I once took a course in lip-reading at the School for the Deaf in Hartford, Connecticut. Three nights ago I found it difficult to sleep and went for a walk down by the old spring house. As I passed it, I saw a girl 
in full white evening dress standing beside the entrance. When she saw me, she came quickly toward me and placed her left hand on my right forearm in an appealing gesture. Then she began to speak, and I could not hear her voice. I could read from her lips, however, what she was saying. I ask your pardon, dear lady, for interrupting your stroll, but I am in great distress. I have of late been subject to strange losses of memory. I left the ball at the hotel a few moments ago, and I cannot recall the way back. I am frightened, too, because it seems that I can remember nothing more, not even my own name. I was touched by the girl's appeal, for she was very beautiful and very pitiful, and I said, if you'll come home with me, I will try to find your parents for you, my dear. There is no hotel near here, and there has not been a ball in Harrodsburg in a long time. She looked at me strangely and then burst into tears. Turning swiftly, she ran toward the spring house and vanished inside the entrance. I went inside to look for her, but she was not there. This, to the best of my memory and belief, is what happened to me three nights ago when I went for a walk about midnight. I do not believe in ghosts, but this was so strange a happenstance that I have decided to make a record of it. The page on which this communication was written was unsigned. sunlight, not of the moonlight, not of the starlight, half man, half sorcerer. Sweet the wizard who taught me the magic, but sweeter the magic. No second-rate magician I, no rabbits out of hats, no sawing people in half, for I live in the olden time when magic can do anything. I can do anything with magic. This is the time when the world is full of knights and princesses and chivalry. 
the time of tournaments, of banquets and feasts, of noble lords and ladies and their silver-armored knights. And the greatest of these, King Arthur. It all started one stormy night when I arrived at the castle of King Uther, a certain Cornish king, to tell him my secret. A little prince will be born to you. He shall be named Arthur, and he will be the greatest king the world has ever known. Prince Arthur? Oh, Merlin! But to keep your promise, you must give the child to me when he's born. Don't worry, I'll take good care of him. Your promise, sire? I promise. And you'll tell no one? No one, Merlin. Good, my lord. Good. Good. <laughs> the night of the new year was Arthur born, delivered at a secret postern gate to me to be holden far apart until his hour should come. Because the lords of that fierce day were as the lords of this wild beasts, and surely would have slain the child for each one sought to rule himself. And I took the child to Sir Hector, who reared the prince as one of his, and no man knew. <laughs> and no man knew. Not many moons, King Uther died himself. Oh, yay, oh, yay. The Archbishop commands all warring barons and lords to London for Christmas Day that ye may forget your quarrels and be friends one unto the other. Oh, yay! Oh, yay! When the barons came to London on Christmas Day, they found in a churchyard a stone with a sword stuck in it. On the stone was written, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king-born of all England. All the barons tried unsuccessfully to pull it out. <laughs> Don't let me bother you, my lords, but the tournament is starting. This is a great chance for you, Kay, to joust with some of the most famous knights in England. I wish I were a knight. Your time will come, Arthur. You're too young now. Father, a dreadful thing's happened. I've left my sword at home. I'll get it, Kay. I'll ride home and fetch it. I, too, will be a knight and win the tournament one day. I feel it in my heart. My good blade carves the casts of men. My tough lance thrust is sure. My strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. The shattering trumpet trilleth high, the hard brands shiver on the steel. The splintered spear shafts crack and fly, the horse and rider reel. They reel, they roll in clanging lists, and when the tide of combat stands, perfume and flowers fall in showers that lightly rain from ladies. On his way, Arthur found the sword in the churchyard. He drew it eagerly from the stand and brought it back to Sir Kay. What's this? What's this upstart want? Young whippersnapper! The sword! I have it! I must be king of England! Kay, did you draw the sword yourself? Of course I did! Tell the truth, Kay. You did not. 
It was Arthur, the prince brought to me by Merlin in the deep of night. Gentlemen, this is your king. Long live King Uther's son. Long live Arthur, King of England. Blow King Merlin, but I still have many enemies. I need a sword, a sword with the strength of a giant's fist and the keenness of a lion's tooth. Then come with me, Arthur. I took Arthur to a great lake in the midst of a deep forest. In the center, an arm clad in white satin was stretched out of the water holding a great sword, Excalibur. Meanwhile, King Leodegrin, father of the beautiful Princess Guinevere, was preparing to defend his castle from an enemy attack. Sir Lano, sound the alarm. Summon all my knights to me. Pages, prepare my armor for battle. Sir Morris and Sir Cyril, see to the manning of the walls. The enemy approaches, but we shall be ready. Make haste. Father, you are tired. Rest a moment here. Thank you, Guinevere. I am very weary. I have brought you a goblet of red wine. I'll bathe your hands with water from this silver bowl. 
and sing to you. As far she fled through sun and shade, the happy winds upon her played, blowing the ringlet from the braid. She looked so lovely as she swayed the rain with dainty fingertips. A man had given all other bliss and all his worldly wealth for this to waste his whole heart in one kiss. Leodegrin's army was heavily outnumbered, but when the battle seemed to be lost, King Arthur rode up wielding his magic sword, Excalibur. The enemy scattered before him and fled. Arthur fell in love with Guinevere, and they were married. Leodegrin gave Arthur the great round table that I'd originally made for King Uther. Then Arthur called his knights, over 100 of them, to sit at the round table, and with the queen at his side, they swore together this great oath. To right the wrong, to punish the guilty, to feed the hungry, to help the feeble, to obey the law, and never turn away from a damsel in distress. The oath of the knights kept England's valleys green, the happiest land that we have ever seen. Across these fair hills the flag of peace did wave, protected by night so strong, so true, so brave. I knew the time must come, the time when once again the fertile fields would drop their great crops, the fruit wither, and the roots die in the sea of smoky blood that swept the land. I saw the time approach, for I see all things, when England's knights would stain the soil with their dear blood, when mothers would shed tears on empty beds, when Arthur, glorious king, would fall. Rain, rain and song, a rainbow in the sky. Excalibur must leave him by and by. An old man's wit may wonder ere he die. Rain, rain and song. Rain, rain. King Arthur was old and one day was mortally wounded in battle. As he lay dying, he commanded one of his knights, Sir Bedivere, to cast Excalibur back into the lake. Sir Bedivere was reluctant to throw away so wonderful a sword, and twice hid it in the rushes by the lakeside. But Arthur wasn't deceived, and commanded him to throw it into the lake. Sir Bedivere obeyed, and saw an arm, draped in white satin, catch it by the hilt, Brandish it three times and draw it under the water. My lord, a boat, a black boat coming this way, and in it three queens, black robed, black hooded, 
with crowns of gold. Lay me in the barge, Sir Bedivere. The world shall never furl its flag of praise, but hail your deed well done and gifts well given, remembering the honors that you brought not only to yourself, but to your land, remembering the peace that came when knights knelt at your feet beside the table round, remembering the cheers when forth you marched into the tournament or to the field of war, remembering that far-off summertime when you were England's king, her scepter, her Excalibur. Well, that's our show today. I hope you liked it. I'm sure Uncle Frank, wherever he is, in the sweet rolling hills of Atlanta, wishes he was here. So we got one more thing. Usually Uncle Frank would bring it to you, but I'm going to have to do. Sadly, Martin Lando died this month. So we have a clip from the great actor himself. And so in the immortal words of those that are immortal, peace out, homies. Until next time. You're my only true friend in the world. But to make you truly understand, there is something I must do. outside my family to lay eyes on the secret room. In this chamber, all the evil of the house of Usher began. It was here all the black arts were performed so many centuries ago. The heinous idolatry of Satan, witchcraft, the black mass, cabalistic rites, every form of torturing human sacrifice were performed here. Look, 
Even after 800 years, the blood has not faded. Every loathsome act of degradation and horror took place in this vile hellhole of sin. Do you remember, as a boy, you asked me about my family crest, the one on my ring. As you can see, it is a horned goat. Black heritage began in the year 1126. Bardolf Asher, a disciple of the infamous Clementius of Busi, was expelled from the church and driven from his homeland for committing despicable acts against God and man. Five years later, Bardolf built the house of Usher which was to serve as an evil temple of Satan for the next 400 years. sacrifice, be blessed by your powerful strength, and make it with our own! invested his evilness within its very walls. Jonathan, hear me. 
myself that is this house. 